right. Y'all stay warm. You too. We'll talk to you tomorrow. All right. Daniel Erspammer joins us now, CEO of the Pelican Institute. How you doing, Daniel? Hey, good morning. I'm doing great. I don't know if you good heard we're talking about Christmas spending. I don't know if you're comfortable with this or not, but do you have an idea about how much out of pocket you'll be before the holidays are over in terms of gift giving? Oh, gosh. You know, uh, two truths. The first is I have four kids. <laughs> Ouch. It's a larger number than I'd like. The second is my wife does most of that. Mm-hmm. I don't even know the answer. <laughs> you don't want to know, Daniel. Ignorance is bliss right. in this case. Um, but I would <laughs> warn people, seriously, to, to manage your budget wisely and don't get caught up That's in the right. spirit. Because as a younger guy, I know I made that mistake a lot of times where I would go crazy at Christmas time, and then, like Courtney was saying, the mortgage and everything else, it lands like you feel like you're being carpet bombed with bills, right, when when you go to the mailbox. So pay in advance oh, absolutely. if you can. Let's talk about the Pelican Institute and the study you guys have done on crime. What prompted it? Yeah. Well, you know, there's a lot of debate right now, of course, rightly so, over crime in Louisiana. We've seen an uptick in violent crime in the last couple of years. Uh, lots of discussion, certainly around previous uh, public safety reforms in Louisiana and and their efficacy, and um, and then again, you know, just w- what are the solutions? How do we how do we understand how to solve for the crime problem? And and our belief, like any any policy in which we engage, starts with understanding the data that that backs up the problem, so we can solve the actual problem, not just what we perceive to be. Um. Trying to get the reality instead of just the perception, right? If it bleeds, it leads. That's right. Uh, and you also compared Louisiana's crime with other states. That's right. You, you, you know, the the results were interesting. And, and, and to be perfectly candid, I wasn't sure what we'd find. Um, you know, we as as we've talked about some before, we have been proponents of public safety reform in Louisiana that focus uh, public resources on the worst offenders, the, the, the biggest dangers to society in favor of, um, you know, shorter sentences uh, sometimes for nonviolent offenders uh, and heavier investment in reentry programs that help people who've committed a crime in the past to reenter society and get a job. And, you know, what we know is. Uh, a job is the best uh, the the best ticket to end recidivism, which is you know repeat crime, and and that's a big driver. So we've been big proponents of that. We wanted to understand is it working, and uh, the the couple of couple of lead pieces, and we can dive into a couple uh, a couple others. But the first is, uh, oh, go ahead. Well, no, I was going to say I'm looking at the report right now, and maybe we can start with the four important conclusions that can be drawn. Absolutely. So, you know, the first is that overall uh, in the last decade and particularly since the reforms in 2017, property crimes are are decreasing in Louisiana. Um, We did see since 2020 a sharp uptick in violent crime. Uh, What we found in the report, in the research, is that this followed a national trend and Louisiana actually uh, had a slightly lower increase um, in violent crime than some of our neighboring states. Um, and, and then, you know, again, we, we wanted to understand, is there any connection between some of the reforms in the past and, and what we're observing in violent crime? And, you know, what we found is there's there's no mathematical connection. Now, let me be clear. Every crime is a tragedy. There's there's you know, this when you're looking at data and, and analyzing it, especially in this space, it can often sound very cold and, you know, like it feels like. You know, maybe we don't care about crime, and I, I I want no crime. I want no murders. I want 
um, you know, to figure out how do we get to the safest communities for, for families and businesses here. But to solve that, we've got to understand what the, the data actually say and how do we actually target the real problem. So let's move on to how does Louisiana compare to the other states? Yeah, so, again, we start from a pretty high level dating back, you know, well over a decade. Uh, in fact, if you look back to 2014, we had the highest rate of violent crime of any of our neighboring states in the southeast. Um, and, and that's dropped just a little bit. We're second. But if you look at the increase, um, ours and every state in the country had a spike in crime, uh, particularly violent crime, uh, right around the time of the COVID lockdowns. And, you know, of course, all of that kind of makes sense in, in, in chaos and uh, you know, challenging times we had in the last couple of years. But Louisiana's uptick um, was, was lower than some of our other states and, and ran about the same trend um, as most of the states in the country. So per capita, even though they're saying New Orleans is a crime, uh, is a murder capital of the nation, the increase is not disproportionate or does that kind of get lost in with the rest of the state? You know, it does get a little bit lost in with the rest of the state, but even if you isolate New Orleans, the spike uh, is is within range of what we're seeing other places. And and look, we, we, we've got to address it, and we, we talk about a few of the, the solutions, and we continue to work on trying to figure out what some of those uh, other best practices and solutions are. But but you're right, the spike in New Orleans has been higher than uh, than some other areas around the state. So what about criminal justice reforms, and, and can you find data that directly correlates to what we did and this was a result? We, we can find a few things, and, and here they are. The first is since uh, the 2017 reforms, actually uh, individuals convicted of violent crimes are serving longer sentences now. Uh, than they did before the reforms. That's exactly what they intended to do: is to free up resources and and prison beds to focus on the the individuals who are the biggest threat to society. Um, and as we look uh, again, overall, uh, crime is down both violent and nonviolent since those reforms, right up until the spike in in 2020. Tell me how we're defining um, reforms, Daniel. Before we go any yeah. further. You bet. So there was a package of reforms back in 2017 supported by Republicans, Democrats, independents, the business community, law enforcement, uh, public policy advocates like the Pelican Institute and others. Uh, And what they did is they said, listen, we're going to model what Texas and Georgia and some other states have done, and we're going to focus more resources on reentry programs. These are what kinds of training and resources we provide to folks as they're coming out of the of the justice system and reenter society. Because, you know, you imagine you've you've been incarcerated. You try to come back. You've you've lost connections to your community, your family. You've lost your job, certainly. Um, and so it can be very hard to get back up on your feet. And uh, what we know is if we can help people do that well, um, they're much less likely to commit a subsequent crime. Now, the, the trade-off of that or the, or the way that you pay for and, and drive those reforms is by reducing some, in a very small way, some sentences for nonviolent offenders um, and, uh, again, increasing resources that we focus on on violent crime. And so uh, it's it controversial in some areas, but but based, again, on best practices from a handful of neighboring states who've had great success in reducing crime and recidivism rates. So basically it comes down to, okay, somebody commits a crime, they have to be punished, you send them to jail. 
Now, when they get out of jail, do they become a productive citizen or do they engage in more crime? Because if they engage in more crime, then they're going back to jail. And if they're going to engage in crime for the rest of their life, do you lock them up for the rest of their life? Or do you try everything you can to turn them around so you don't have to pay that cost of locking them up? We're going to take a break, Daniel. We'll pick it up here. We'll come back. We'll talk about the truth about incarceration rates and public safety. We're talking to Daniel Erspammer, CEO of the Pelican Institute. They did a pretty, they've done a pretty extensive study, a new report on crime and a criminal justice system in Louisiana and what works and what doesn't. And so far, well, we've learned that the violent crime is bad in New Orleans, but when you look at it statewide, it, it's uh, kind of like a regional phenomenon and not just something unique to Louisiana. If you have any questions or comments, please, the Oakland Jeweler Talk and Text Line 504-260-1870 is open, and I'll pass those questions along to Daniel and see how it um, coincides with the research they've done when we come back. Tommy Tucker, WWL. Wednesday, December 21st, the winter solstice today. Shortest day of the year, but not the earliest sunset due to a, I guess, astronomical anomaly that happened last week. Daniel Erspommer is our guest, CEO of the Pelican Institute, talking about their new report on crime and a criminal justice system in Louisiana. Daniel, for people that don't know, tell us a little bit about the Pelican Institute and why you guys took this on. Absolutely. Thank you for that. The Pelican Institute is Louisiana's free market think tank. And what that means is, um, you know, we, we look at policy issues facing the state. And our mission is cer- cer- uh, centered around the idea of human flourishing. We believe every Louisianan should have the opportunity to flourish. And uh, that often means removing government barriers to opportunity and uh, really creating a state and environment that can be a, an e- a place of economic and, and social opportunity for every person. And so, uh, you know, we work on things like education, freedom and tax reform and, and, and budget reform and some things that can get a little wonky. And uh, But public safety has a really important role to play, obviously, in whether or not people can prosper and thrive. Uh, and so it's it's been an issue we've worked on really since the beginning. It's, it's an important piece of the puzzle. All right. So I'm looking at page eight of the report here, the truth about incarceration rates and public safety. What did you find? Yeah, so lots of discussion right now about incarceration rates. And I, I want to point out a couple of quick things. It's important to remember that when we talk about people who are incarcerated, 90, well over 98, almost 99% of people who are incarcerated are coming out of incarceration. Very, very few people obviously are serving the rest of their lives in prison. And so what we're looking at here is a question of what happens when people come out and when. So this idea that uh, somehow reducing sentences with the 17 reforms, you know, again, we're reducing sentences by something less than uh, on average 15 to 20 days. Um, and so we're, we're really talking about a matter of days and a question of what happens when people come out. So one of the things we wanted to know, is there any connection uh, between uh, lowering incarceration rates? And, and it's also important to remember Louisiana uh, still, even after the reforms, is either depending on the year one or two in the highest incarceration rates per capita of any state in the country. And our country is the largest incarcerator of any place in the world. So uh, we, we still incarcerate a lot of people even after these reforms. Um, and we looked at the change in prison rate, the change in crime, the change, uh, you know, in a variety of states. And what we found is there's there's no connection, uh, direct connection between incarceration rates and crime rates. So incarceration 
education is a tool in the public safety system. It should be used. It should be used wisely. Uh, but it's one tool of, of a number to reduce crime, reduce recidivism, and make sure we have the safest streets we can. Um, you know, that when, when people hear that, they, they're going to hear, and I know how our audience thinks sometimes, some members of our audience, well, if they're going to keep committing crimes, then you need to keep them locked up. And yep. all you need to do as society increases or as the criminals increase is build more prisons. But to your point, only 98 percent are going to stay in jail. They're going to come out. The other side would say, well, then you need longer sentences. Talk about the cost to society, if you will, of, of keeping yep. somebody in prison as opposed to leading a productive life. Yeah, it's a huge cost to society, right? It, there's a direct cost to taxpayers, obviously, in housing, feeding, providing medical care for someone for the remainder of their life or for uh, a significant period of time. But more importantly, the loss in productivity, the loss in uh, job creation and uh, economic opportunity for not just the individuals, certainly, who, who are serving their time, uh, their, their sentence to society, due to society, uh, but for, for job creators, for new enterprises as entrepreneurs. Um, and, and the other reality, what we've learned is when we incarcerate people, we put people in prison for, for low-level nonviolent crimes, all too often they come back out as better criminals, right? You, you put them in a place where they're, they're surrounded by other people who've, who are incarcerated for committing crime. And uh, when we don't provide the right programs to help people uh, you know, really ha- have a chance at redemption, have, have a chance at, at getting back on their feet, we're, we're just making the crime problem worse. So there's an emotional feel-good, I think, sometimes to, to punishment. And look, people should be punished. People should serve their time. People should, should pay for what they do. But if our goal really is increased public safety, if our goal is reduction in crime, we've got to focus on the drivers of that and, and recidivism or repeat crime. These individuals, you hear the stories every day, they just rotate through the system. Um, and something's wrong there. And, and, and for some people, I think your listeners are right. They should be serving longer sentences. We we should be uh, more direct on that. For others, it's because we haven't given them the tools. We, we drop someone back out into society after they've lost all ties and expect them to succeed, and that's just never going to work. So I think both, both solutions should be on the table. I think it's safe to presume that when you send somebody to jail, they're going to come out different than when they went in, and what you're talking about is how are they going to come out, right? That's right. That's right. And, and we have the opportunity to – uh, to provide job training to make sure that, uh, again, when they come out, they've, they've got a skill that's marketable that, that can help get employment and get worked back into society and, and become a productive member of our communities again. And look, it's it's Christmas, it's, uh, it's the holidays, and redemption is an important thing that we think about, particularly at this time. And we just see story after story of people who 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 do come out, who've learned their lesson, um, let's give those folks the opportunity to succeed um, and, and set up a system that, that helps them get back on their feet while we continue to protect uh, protect our, our, our families and our communities. And, you know, as we look at, at the police force and others, you know, we've got to focus on evidence-based strategies that reduce crime. We've got to continually continue to invest and fund our police departments. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of solutions to this, and sometimes it just gets lost in politics. Where do drug offenses fit into the number of people that are incarcerated, and does that lead us to a conversation about whether this should be treated as a crime or a health issue? Yeah, the two, two drivers there uh, uh, that are worth mentioning. Drugs are certainly one. That is among the 
number of low-level nonviolent crimes. Um, some of some of those sentences have already been reduced, and I think it's it's something as a society we we need to look at. Is there an addiction issue here? We know certainly drugs and and certainly drug territories and and the black market sales of drugs do in fact lead to violent crimes. So that's something we need to be mindful of. Uh, but but certainly when we're dealing with an addiction issue, that that is absolutely a health uh, health issue. And the same thing is, you know, we're asking our our law enforcement officers in some cases to be mental health professionals. Um, you know, whether it's addiction or, or some other mental health problem, you know, we, we've got a significant number of of our incarcerated population who are dealing with with significant mental health or addiction issues. Um, and, and it's not a, an easy one size fits all solution. And it's one of those things I think that's easy for some people to just swipe aside and say, well, that's just the way it is. But 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 there there are programs that are working in other states that we need to be looking at so that we can, again, focus our law enforcement, our public safety officials on public safety and and have a different pathway in some cases for uh, for where the where the driver of, of the engagement in the system is is mental health or addiction. Where does age play in all of this? Because when we talk about jobs and careers, I'll get texts from people that say they lost their job when they're 50 and they were trying to recreate themselves and not having a, an easy time of it because ageism does exist in the workplace. And, and that's somebody that has no criminal record at all. So I just wonder if you're looking at a juvenile that commits a crime, a violent crime, you know, I, I don't know. How long do you lock them up? Law says 21 if they're charged as a juvenile, longer than that. What happens when they get out? Uh, how do you determine the difference between a violent and nonviolent offender in terms of what it takes to, to get them ready to reenter society? I would think psychological help might be part of that. There are some people that are just bad uh, or evil, however you want to say it. But again, for somebody who gets out of jail at 45, it's hard enough for somebody at 45 or 50 that loses their job just in the workplace to get hired and start a career, let alone if you've been in prison, right? Oh, no question about it. And imagine if you've been incarcerated for 20 years, how much the world has changed. Sure. Uh, I mean, you think back 20 years ago, just in terms of skills and, and ability. And, and, you know, this also, uh, this isn't our topic for the day, but it speaks to the need broadly to make sure our state is, is creating job opportunities in a variety of industries and a variety of skill levels, right? We We miss opportunities all the time because of our tax and regulatory code and, and, and other things for value-added manufacturing and shipping and, and some things given our, our ports, given our, uh, our natural resources. We have, we have lots of missed opportunities. And so certainly we've got to fix the criminal justice system, but, but a big, frankly, a big driver to solving crime and a big, big driver to helping folks get, get work, whether they're in the, uh, in the system or just have lost a different job, is diversifying our economy and, and driving economic growth. So again, I know that's not our topic for today. No, but, but if, but if somebody right, if somebody gets out of jail and they can't find a job, the best that happens is they go on the welfare rolls, right? That's the best that happens. That's exactly right. That's yep, the best that's possible right. case you could look for. All right, let's take a break. We come back. We'll talk about some of the conclusions that you found. We're talking to Daniel Erspammer, CEO of the Pelican Institute, about their new report on crime and a criminal justice system in Louisiana. 937, 23 till 10. Tommy Tucker back in a flash on WWL. 9.43, 17 till 10. couple of minutes left with Daniel Erspammer, CEO of the Pelican Institute, talking about their new report on crime and a criminal justice system in Louisiana um, and, and some of the points that we've discussed already. And I should mention, if you missed anything this morning, you can download 
the Odyssey app. It's free, and then use the Rewind feature to listen to anything that happened on WWL in the last 24 hours. But, um, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to lock people up for life? Are you send them to jail? They're going to come out different than when they went in. So how do you... How do you deal with that? And and if you've been in a situation where you're 50 or something or 45 trying to find jo- a job or you are trying to recreate yourself, well, that that's if you've not been in prison. If you can been in prison, if you'd been in prison, you can only imagine how hard that is. And if an ex-con can't find a job, the best that can happen is they go on welfare and food stamps, and we continue to support them for not working. Is that accurate? Daniel, kind of harsh, but I think that's pretty much it, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, I, I think you've nailed it. Um, it. And in the meantime, you know, the worst case scenario, of course, is is they commit another crime, right. maybe worse and more violent than the one before. So I think you've nailed it. All right. So let's talk about some of the things that the Pelican Institute found that Louisiana state and local leaders can do to recrease, in, uh, reduce crime, rather, and maybe increase public safety. What can they do? Yeah, and let me caveat by saying we're still working on this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I want to I want to point to the NOLA Coalition has some great recommendations that um, I know are starting to get some traction here in New Orleans, which is great news. Um, they're doing excellent work. Lots of groups and individuals trying to lead on this, and we're just trying to get to the data and figure out what's working. So, you know, first and foremost, and this is really important, we've got to continue, and everybody knows this, continue to invest, properly fund our police and law enforcement, and make sure we do everything in our power to recruit men and women who can come serve this community. It is a hard job. It is a thankless job, a dangerous job. Um, but, gosh, without those those men and women who are protecting our communities, um, it becomes obviously much, much more difficult to to protect public safety and then give them not only the resources, but but the time to to focus on the most serious crimes. Right. Let's focus not only on prevention, but but solving and and uh, 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 really putting their attention on on the most serious problems facing our city, our state. Um, you know, focus on those evidence-based strategies. A lot of research around policing strategies and uh, training that we can give um, our, our law enforcement officers, not to mention ensuring that uh, the district attorneys and the folks in the law part of law and order um, are, are charging in appropriate time windows. You know, think about these charging windows. It, we, we so certainly saw over the last year that, that a number of people were let out of, of jail pre-trial because their charging window ran out. What's the worst case scenario? Because if you didn't do it, you've lost a significant chunk of your life to being in jail, and you're going to have an awfully hard time getting back in, into your community. And if you did and, and we didn't charge you, now you're back on the street. So you know, getting timely – uh, charges and 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 that all you know all of this works together to making sure we have the resources and, and manpower uh, to get it done and then from a broad level continue to focus on reentry programs continue to focus on that big driver of crime which we call recidivism people who have who commit repeat crimes so focus on training to to prevent that and when we see people who are just uh, cycling through the system let's figure out how to solve that. Um, that will be a big driver to uh, uh, to reducing crime and increasing public safety here in Louisiana. Well, the Pelican Institute is a think tank, so let's wax philosophic here, okay, and just do some thinking. Uh, it seems to me that opportunity is important, but it also seems that parenting is very important, and, and somehow values have to be instilled in young people that you can't just do it if you can get away with it, and stealing is wrong, hurting other people is wrong, 
etc. And I always thought, Daniel, that there's a problem with some inner city uh, criminals or, or people that would be predisposed to that or, or go that way because they don't realize that it's not either be a movie star or a glamorous athlete or death, that there's a whole lot yeah. of living that happens in between every day. That's where the vast majority of the country spends their time just going to work and having a family and maybe taking a vacation every year if you can. I don't think a lot of inner city kids get that. I think that message is getting increasingly lost. And again, we're just, you know, thinking here as a think tank. Uh, yeah. I, I think that somehow we need to get that message to students that, you know, you know, you can have a great life if you're an electrician. You can have a great life if you're a teacher. You can have a great life if you do whatever. It's not rock star athlete, mansions, Hummers, whatever, or death. There's a lot in between. Your thoughts on that? Yeah, you know, Tommy, you bring up two things I think that are really important. The first is public policy doesn't solve every problem. And this is where our communities, our families, our churches, civil society more broadly – has a really important role to step up and, and, and do exactly what you're talking about, is educate our young people, engage the community, say enough is enough. Our pastors, our community leaders, certainly our, our families, you know, this is where most of that formation begins. And, and I'm always chagrined to see or to not see, uh, you know, that, that sort of community uprising in that way to make sure across our city, across our state, you know, we, we lock arms and say, this is enough. We're going to come together and solve it. So um, that's something public policy government can't solve, but we've got to keep talking about because it it's so important to our future. The second, as you rightly note, is our education system. You know, there's a, a, a school of thought that looks at what we call the school to prison pipeline. And part of that challenge is when we have and try to pr- uh, present a one-size-fits-all school system where we just sort of plug and play and move people along, what we need is an individualized system that uh, that encourages, as you say, for people to enter the trades. We need people who are trained in that. We need pathways to career. We also need to, to find people who have different sets of skills and, and certainly address things like dyslexia and other learning challenges earlier on in the system and make sure kids can read and do math early on. Um, you know, our school system, and we've talked about this before, really are failing our kids in this regard. And, and, and the solution is empowering parents, empowering families again, we, the theme here, uh, and, and ensuring we have many, many options within our education system and that we can provide a school that fits for every kid that has a huge impact in preventing future crime and solving our problems in the future. It seems like some of these inner-city kids with parents that might be hooked on drugs or neglected or what have you, they don't even know what normal is. So it would seem to me one of the things we need to do at some point is expose them to normalcy so they know what it is they're trying to achieve because I don't think the average person that lives in suburbia or has had opportunities like I have or you, Daniel, or anybody listening out there, um, and I'm not talking about being privileged. I'm just talking about just growing up in a normal America, a normal uh, household setting with normal goals, et cetera, et cetera. I remember my first job interview I went on with Energy a long, long time ago when I had quit school and I thought I didn't need all that college. You guys said, well, what are your goals? And at that point, because of the way I was brought up, the only goal I had was, well, I wanted to live like my uncle who lived across the street who had normalcy and, you know, worked for the post office and and took vacations and and just lived a normal lifestyle. And I often think about that, that I was nowhere close to being an inner city kid or anything like that, but it must be hard 
for them to envision a future that's normal when they've not experienced normal throughout their life so far. Yeah, you know, you're right. You, you, you take a kid, you know, from whatever circumstance, who's the deck is, is already stacked against you. You're, you're, you're starting, you know, maybe a, a few years behind in, in reading and, in, in, you know, sort of your personal formation, and, and we throw you basically to the wolves. Um, it, it is a challenge. And so, and, and just the yeah, sociological part of it, Daniel, in terms of right. what normal life looks like, you know? Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and this is why crime is such a thorny issue to solve and, and frankly, why the sort of red meat political rhetoric surrounding it almost never is yep, the right answer. That's, that's that's part of the reason we did this study is so that we can at least start to ground this in some reality and some principles so we solve the right problems instead of just bandying about with a political football. If you can make a New Year's resolution, I would encourage people, as I say in my Twitter description, to do your own thinking uh, don't let somebody else make up your mind for you, and there are no simple solutions to complex problems. It feels good to jump Amen. in that line. It does, but it's not going to solve anything. Daniel, thank you. I appreciate your time. Always appreciate being with you. You're, Merry you're Christmas. so right. Happy New Year's. Thank you, Merry sir. Christmas. Daniel Erspammer, CEO of the Pelican Institute, 952 and a half. Coming back, WWO.